looking at the theme of the kingdom of heaven and how that, how that, how that comes down to earth this fall, and uh, and we're con- continuing with the last of the beatitudes, and sort of one of the ones that's most uh, contradictory and, and and sometimes the hardest to understand, where Jesus goes through describing what the blessed life looks at, looks like, and you see all these things that you can kind of understand somehow. Or another, and then then he gets to this one that that really makes makes no sense, and then he kind of expands on how that all works itself out. It's printed in your program. It starts at, at Matthew uh, chapter five, verse eleven. Jesus says, "Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward." is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Then he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a blanket, under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. This is God's word. Now, one of the things I've noticed about life is that we, and and everybody knows, is that we humans are irreducibly social and relational beings. Um, You know, I've heard it said is the quality of your life will ultimately come down to the quality of your relationships or lack thereof. Because our life really is, in essence, our relationship. Our whole identity is defined by the people we are in relationships with. You know, there's obvious ways. You know, your social life is a function of your relationships. Your family life is a function of your relationships. Those are are nothing but relationships. But it's true professionally as well. Uh, You know, success goes to the people who get along with other people, who work well with others, who play well with others. You know, if nobody likes you, then nobody's going to be willing to work under you. Nobody's going to be willing to work with you. No one's going to be willing to, uh, to hire you to work with them. And so people who don't get along well with others, even if they do have, have uh, technical skills or abilities, still find their careers stymied as a result. And it's also true it turns out, as far as our mental and physical health goes, if we don't have relationships, one of the things that tends to go in our life is our mental health and our physical health. In fact, there was a, a study that came out just a couple years ago. I've mentioned it before, but it was remarkable. They concluded that chronic loneliness is as much of a health risk, especially for older adults, particularly for older adults, it's as much of a health, health risk as morbid obesity or smoking cigarettes because it has that much of an effect on our longevity and our our well-being. And that, my friends, is why going to a friendly little church is such a good thing for you. So, <laughs> but, uh, but actually, that, that wasn't, that's not exactly my point. That, that's also why it's so hard to figure out this beatitude. Jesus says, you're blessed when people revile you and persecute you. You're blessed when people utter all kinds of evil against you and even when people lie about you. You're blessed um, 
when, when everybody is against you, you're actually blessed. And, you know, I think what this is saying, in essence, what he, he wants you to wrap your mind around is there's actually something more important. As, as much as your relationships are important, there's something that's more important. As much as your connection with others is, is important, there's something that's even higher in importance, and that is experiencing the blessing of God, experiencing the rela- having a relationship with God, and being connected to God. And in fact, Jesus is challenging us here that, that if we're going to seek the blessing of God at some points and in some ways, it might cost us some of our most important relationships, and we've got to be willing to accept that. There's something in our lives that has to be put above the pursuit of relationships, popularity, professional progress, and, and social advancement, and all those kinds of things. You know, so basically, at one level, this is a warning about peer pressure. And, and you know, when we're talking to 16-year-old girls, we're always worried about how they might be succumbing to peer pressure, right? And, you know, it's always your, your concern if you have uh, teenagers in your life, who are their friends and what are their friends telling them to do? And, and that's, that's certainly a concern to, to be aware of, but, but I believe that peer pressure is something we're subject to at every at every level and at every age, at every stage. In my uh, years ago, I knew a guy. I knew him because we were both active in, in community affairs in the town I used to live in. And he was the vice president of the Kiwanis Club. He, his son was an Eagle Scout, but he had stayed involved in the Boy Scouts after his son had graduated and, and, and uh, left town and was, was a scoutmaster and very involved in the Boy Scouts and things like that. He was an engineer in a small engineering firm in the area. And uh, just one of those sort of pillars of the community kind of guys. Uh, but uh, then, then I find out he's kind of falls off the radar and, and someone mentions, oh, by the way, yeah, he went, went to prison. And I said, how did that guy, Mr. Boy Scout, Mr. Kiwanis Club, end up in prison? Well, it turned out that his little engineering firm had a contract with the federal government and they ended up, his firm ended up defrauding the government, and this was led by other people in his, his, in his company, but he, he went along with it. He didn't stop it. He didn't report it when he could have and should have, and so he ended up going to prison with a bunch of other people in the little company that he worked with. And that, that struck me as I read the story, because he, he was just someone who got kind of sucked into this vortex as, as the federal government prosecuted the company, the little company he was a part of. And it struck me as I, as I learned more about this that it's not just 16-year-old girls who are subject to peer pressure, it's also ugly old men. You know, it's, it's a universal destroyer of all of us. The blessing of God requires sometimes that we pursue something greater than just our relationships, just our, our, our popularity. And that sometimes a relationship with God is going to, dis- to, to cost us these other things. And in all of our lives, there's going to be times and there's going to be places when push comes to shove and where you might have to choose, what blessing do I really want? What blessing am I going to make my priority? The blessing of God or the blessing of others. And so Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you're rejected. Blessed are you when, when you're pushed to the margins if 
that's because you're choosing the blessing of God. If that's because you're prioritizing the blessing of God in that time and in that place. Jesus says the reality is those who are blessed are those who choose righteousness. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake is how, is how the beatitude starts, starts off. And, uh, you know, he's saying when you're persecuted by others, that's okay because you'll be blessed by God. When you're insulted by others, that's okay if you know the affirmation of God. When you're lied about by others, that's okay if you know the truth of God. So the point is that the blessing of God is so powerful that even if it costs you everything, it's still worth it, even though God made us irreducibly relational, social beings. But part of the reason for this is because God says that, that if you're seeking his blessing, if you're in his kingdom, you're invited into a new community. You're invited into a new society that evaluates everything on other criterion. You know, the, the, the Bible says that those who are pursuing the blessing of God, those who know the blessing of God, are invited into a new city, a new family, a new community with new relationships that are created and shaped by fellow seekers of the blessing of God. Jesus goes on to say, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. He's saying you go from one city, from being primarily a resident of Jersey City, of Bayonne or New York City or whatever, to another city, to being a resident of the city on a hill, a citizen of the city on the hill. And so you go from one type of blessing and one type of citizenship to another type of blessing, another type of citizenship, something that's greater than yourself. And, you know, I think we're all defined by the city we grow up in, the cities that we're a part of. You know, if someone's from New York City they'll be, and grows up in New York City, they'll be a lot different than someone who grows up in Dallas or someone who grows up in Moscow or someone who grows up in... Lagos or someone who grows up in Shanghai because the cities we grow up in shape us and mold us and form us in certain ways. But what it's, the Bible says is to be a Christian in Philippians 3.20, Paul says that when we become Christians, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. And that is our primary and fundamental identity. And that's, that's, where our roots lie. And so to, to step away, to, to no longer say that our social relationships and our city relationships are ultimate is, is not to deny that we need these things, but to recognize and affirm and commit ourselves to another location, to another type of relationships, to, a, to another place where we'll belong, to have our citizenship in heaven. Now, one of the things about life in cities, you know, out on the frontier, we celebrate the, the rugged individualist. But it strikes me that when you're in the city, we're all so much more interdependent. You know, the people who, who drive the buses and drive the, drive the path trains that we, we get on, you know, we depend on those people. We depend on the people who pick up the garbage. We depend on the teachers and the students, or the teachers who make the, 
the schools work and, and the other types of workers like that. And, and we're all aware, you know, in, in your, whatever you do in a city, you're keenly aware of the industries that make that city work, whether it's a factory or, or a mill town or whether it's just a lot of banks, whatever it is that, that provides the industries that bring people there that, that make that city a vital place. And cities are this place of synergy where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts because we're all working together, because we're all specialized, because we all have our niche that we, that we participate in, we're all able to excel and, and accomplish more than we would if we were just out, in the, out on the frontier as a rugged individualist. And so to be a believer, to be part of the new city, the city set on a hill, is to recognize that we're, com we're a part of something much greater than ourselves and, and we gotta find our connections there. And that's, at one, one level, that's a letting go. At another level, that's an embracing of this new identity, embracing of this new citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus describes his followers when they come together as a city on a hill. The collection of his followers are a city on a hill. And, you know, that, that's a, an image that goes back to the function of cities, particularly in the ancient Near East. If you remember, uh, back in, in, in that day and age, the cities were the place where there was some level of law and order and, and where there was, there was a interpersonal support. The cities were fortresses and a place where, where, where society functioned. And once you stepped out of the bounds of the city into the wilderness, it was just the wilderness. It was every man for himself. You know, you remember the story of the Good Samaritan. He's traveling from Jerusalem to, to Jericho and he gets jumped because when you're out in the, out in the wilderness, you're on your own. And, uh, so this image of a city on a hill, I think what, what Jesus is evoking is this idea of these travelers traveling between cities and the journey is long, the journey is hard, and they don't make it before nightfall. But as they're traveling in the direction of the city, they see off in the distance the lights of the city and they know they're going to make it. They know if they just keep going, they're almost there. And if they just maintain their forward progress, they'll arrive in the city and they'll be safe and they'll be secure once they get there. And so the image of, so that's the picture of what the church should be, what the church could be, what we can aspire to be when people see our good works and glorify God. You know, God is, bring, God is at work. He's bringing heaven to earth. And the city is, the, the church, the gathering of believers is to be proof of the fact that heaven is coming down to earth, that, that, that the kingdom of heaven is at work. Because it should be a model of flourishing, of harmony, of love, of generosity, of integrity, of mercy and justice. And that's what God calls us to be. That's what God calls believers to be. That's what, you know, whether it's, it's a small group of believers or a church of believers or, or believers uh, across the country to be this, this attractive picture of the kingdom of God. The only problem with that, problem I see with that is in the history of the church, when has the church actually lived up to that ideal? 
when, you know, where does the church today actually live up to that ideal? You know, one of the most discouraging things is it seems like whatever trends or issues we find in, in society, they, they make their, their way into the church and whatever, you know, they're, they're sort of the atheistic form of whatever pathology there is and then there becomes the Christian form of it. And, and you know, one example, particularly disturbing example is as you know, there was this the, the Me Too movement that came around in the last year, and then just following on the heels of that was the Church Too movement, and all these people started coming out with these stories of terrible things that happened to them by people in spiritual authority, terrible things that happened to them in the context of, of attending church, and, and it was like, well, is the church really any different? And there's a sense in which I think the church is worse because, you know, in the world you can kind of expect it and people, and people just kind of go their own way. But in the church we have all the same pathologies, all the same sin, and all the same dysfunction, all the same factions and, and issues, but it's just, just plastered over with this tacky veneer of self-righteousness and piety that makes it even worse, you know. You just rather look at the cracks than, than see it all painted over. Uh, and uh, rather than the church being a, uh, an attraction to the kingdom of God, so often in my experience, and even in my own practice of the church, it's the failures of the church and the shortcomings of the church that lead people to wonder about the presence of God and, and our refutations of the power and presence of God. You know, somebody said that the best reason not to believe in Jesus and the best reason not to believe in the gospel is to look at the practice of the people who say they do. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's, it's one way to look at it. I, you know, my old neighborhood, I used to live in a, in a very Jewish town where a lot of people had no, no Christian background whatsoever. And, and you'd meet people and and start talking to them. They say, "Oh, by the way, what do you do for a living?" I say, "Well, I'm a pastor." And they look at me and say, "What's a pastor?" And then I moved to my new neighborhood here in Jersey City, and I meet people and they say, "What do you do for a living?" I say, "Well, I'm a pastor." And, and you know what they all say? They're like, "My uncle's a pastor. My mama's a pastor." It's like everybody's related to a pastor. But then, you know, unfortunately, what I've observed is. That's usually not a good thing. Turns out the uncle who was a pastor collected all this money and then embezzled it and, and ran off to Florida and, and everybody in the family is mad at him. I mean, seriously. Or, or someone's like, my mom's a pastor, and then you find out they haven't talked to their mom in like five years because the, the relationship's so, so strange. And, and so you just, you just kind of wonder... What, why is it that almost every time you hear a story about the church in someone's life, you hear these dark stories of hypocrisy and abuse and failure, and, and you meet all these people who are never going back to church and won't even consider Jesus or the claims of the gospel because they've had such profoundly negative experiences. And, uh, you know, I think this is true true of, of the, the church broadly speaking, and oftentimes it's true because of, of a particular interaction someone has had with someone who's highly pious but has other areas of their life that are, that are sketchy. But here's the thing I want you to see about the church, and th this, is, this has always been true, by the way. It was true of the church in the Old Testament. It's true of the first century church. It's true 
throughout the ages of the church is that, that the, the church itself is the biggest argument against the truth of the gospel. But there's another side, and it's simply this, that the church and true followers of Christ have within themselves, even within their structure, the seeds of restoration so that when we fall, when we fail, when, we, when our lives and when our churches, when, when our, our whole movement becomes an embarrassment to the gospel, even in that, the seeds of restoration lie because the church and followers of Christ individually are never beyond restoration and renewal through the power of the gospel. And I think the best illustration of this, I think everybody, almost all, all Christians today recognize, with a few notable exceptions that prove the rule, almost all Christians today recognize that one of the darkest and deepest failures of the church in America, in the history of America, has been the failure of the established church to recognize the righteousness of the civil rights movement and the importance of the emancipation of, of slaves before that. I think everybody, and you know, it's one of the most embarrassing, embarrassing things about being Christian, it, it, you know, and, and part, part of, a, of a majority church is to come to grips with the fact that while these struggles were going on, nobody in, in, in our church did anything about it. And it's one of the things that is brought up continually when you talk to people, if you try to talk about you know, values or things like that, they, they, they'll always bring up, well, where was, where was the church during the civil rights movement? Where was the church during, the, uh, during slavery in America? Why, why was it that Christians were the slave owners? Why was it that the church was silent in those, in those things? And, uh, you know, on, honestly, to modern people, when you talk about the church, it's one of the hardest things. It's one of the things that, that comes up regularly and one of the most embarrassing things to admit. One of the darkest moments in this, though, shows how the church has in itself the seeds of its own restoration. In 1963, Martin Luther King was in charge of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which he hoped was going to be this, this, this uh, movement of Christian believers, of Bible believers, of gospel preachers, across the country that were gonna work for civil, for civil rights. And one of his big partners was Billy Graham. Billy Graham was one of the big, big supporters of it from, from the 1950s on. And so Martin, Lu Martin Luther King was, was, uh, was working hard on this. And, and if you know the story, he, he went to Birmingham and they were gonna protest uh, segregation in Birmingham. And uh, instead of Instead of the churches getting behind him, he was kind of hung out to dry and he was thrown into jail and he spent some time in a Birmingham jail. And while he was there, he wrote a letter to his fellow clergy entitled Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And it was a letter to his other pastors. And he was basically saying, do you guys understand what you're supposed to be teaching? Do you understand what it is we claim we believe? Why aren't we doing something about it? And then this is what he says kind of as, as, he's, as he's going through this thing about his, just his disappointment in, in, in his fellow pastors there in Birmingham. He says, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect, 
and through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than men. They were small in number, but they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought to an end such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. See, his message to his fellow ministers is the flaw in the church is not endemic to the church. The flaw in the church is that we strayed from our founding principles. We strayed from our founding ideals, and we become something less than that. If we get back to the power of the early church, if we get back to the faith of the early church, if we get back to the commitment of the early church, we'll have the power of the early church. Because, see, God puts in the church, even in our weakness, even in our infidelity, even in our lack of courage and lack of conviction, He's put in the church the seeds for our renewal, if we'll trust him. And the history of the church, the history of the Christian life, is the cycle of repentance and faith and renewal, and then we fall into another sin, but then we can go back to grace, go back to, go back, go back to God and, and see these ideals renewed in our lives. The people of God have a history of stumbling and bumbling, but it's the plan of God to work through the grace of God to bring them back, to renew their hearts and minds, not by becoming something other than they are, but by remembering what it is we are and what God has made us and what God is doing in us. The church and the Christian life need a, need a process of continual renewal, continual self-examination, continual... Uh, return to our basic principles to ask how do these apply to us today you know and 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 when we do that the the promise will will come true that he says here in verse 16 in the same way let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven and that's the promise of the Christian life as God wants it to be, as God has designed it to be, that our light will shine before others, that they'll see our good works, that, that they will, will give glory to our Father in heaven. And that's the challenge and the mission that he's given us. That's what it means for us to bring heaven down to earth. But the challenge is, as I said, you know, we're famous more for our failures of that ideal than our accomplishment of that ideal through, through the ages and through the centuries. And so what well, we ultimately recognize that what we do as a church, the good work we do, the ultimate good work we do, the ultimate thing we do is point beyond ourselves to our Lord Jesus Christ. In John 8, 12, Jesus said this, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We have a light in ourselves to the extent that we are reflecting the light of Christ 
beyond us. We have a light in ourselves, not to the extent that we have become pious enough, not to the extent that we've become righteous enough, not to the extent that we've become convicted enough, but to the extent that we're following and reflecting the light of Christ in our lives and through our lives to everybody else. And Jesus shows us what it takes to be a light to the world. And you know what he shows us? He shows us that it is difficult. Because in the last days of Jesus, he lived out this beatitude. He was persecuted. He was arrested, even though he was an innocent man. He was insulted. You remember the story of the passion of Christ? They, they put a bag over his head, and then they hit him, and they said, prophesy to us. Who hit you? Remember that? They, they were just making fun of him. They, they lied about him. They, they brought him before Pilate, and they said, he's broken Caesar's law. He said he's the king of the Jews, and we have no king but Caesar, and so he must be crucified. They cursed him and asked that a murderer be released to them and that Barabbas, or that Barabbas be released to them and that Jesus be crucified in his place. It was both the the religious authorities of his day, both the Jewish authorities of his day, and then the Roman authorities of his day unjustly persecuted Jesus, but it was also his disciples. Remember, Judas, Judas turned him in, betrayed him, Peter denied him, and the other ten just disappeared. They were nowhere to be found. Jesus shows us that it's hard to be light. To be light means you've got to burn. To be light is costly. To be light is, is painful. But, you know, for Jesus, the personal loss and devastation, all that was a flea bite. Because, you know, what made him sweat blood as he anticipated his suffering, it wasn't the fact that Peter was going to deny him. It wasn't the fact that he was going to be arrested. It wasn't that the fact that the crowds were going to yell, crucify him, crucify him, or that the soldiers would nail put nails through his hands and through his feet. You know what made him tremble? Was that he was losing the relationship that had sustained him for all eternity. And on that cross, his agony was reflected when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? the agony of Christ, the price of him being a light was he had to be forsaken by his father. And he, he asked, why have you forsaken me? And the answer comes back through the rest of the Bible that he was cursed so that we could be blessed. He was punished so that we could receive his reward. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. And darkness came down on him so that but the darkness could not overcome him. And that's the hope that we have. You know, let me just tell you something about life. People will let you down. People will disappoint you. Pastors will let you down. Even churches sometimes let you down. And sometimes they make us wonder, is it possible? How could that person who seemed to be so full of faith be such a train wreck? How could that person who seemed to know so much about God be so hateful toward, toward me? And sometimes you'll let yourself down. And you'll say, how did, I thought I was a believer, but look at what I've done to myself. Look at what I've done to the people I thought I loved. 
and we let ourselves down. And sometimes the thing that makes us wonder if it's true is, well, I'm trying to believe and look at what a mess I am. But when we do that, look again to him. He is the light of the world. Make him the light of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to rest in that. Help us to trust in that. Help us to be transformed by that. And and may that become such a power to us that it trumps our own failures, trumps the failures of those around us, and gives us a sense of hope and joy in the midst of the chaos of this world. We pray in his holy name. Amen.